0: Welcome everybody. Recording in progress. All right, this is Kabbalan Coffee, a special Sukkot edition. Okay, every year, pretty much every year, we've done this, right? I'm looking around, I'm looking around. You guys have been here before, right? You guys have been here, KNC, in the Sukkot before. I'll tell you this, it's one of my favorite times of year. Because, like Atlanta, in the fall, around Sukkot time, unless it's raining, which it often does, But when it's not raining, it's usually beautiful weather. Do you guys notice that as soon as Sukkot began, the weather cooled down? Yeah. Did you notice that? It was like uncanny. It like dropped like 10 degrees just to make it awesome for the holiday. Perfect timing. And Hashem, we love you. Now, here's the thing. Now we love you anyway, but you know, especially because you're hooking us up with the good weather. I don't know if you guys know this, but in our prayers, and today's about prayer, I have some amazing stuff to share with you. Um, In our prayers, in the Amida, we cycle through two halves of the year. So one half of the year, we're praying for, for, for the dew, D-E-W, right, for the dew. And then the second half of the year, we pray for rain. And it's really tied into, the truth is it's really tied into the Israeli, the cycle of agriculture in the land of Israel. Prayers for when, you know, cause look, you need rain for things to grow. If you're a farmer, you need rain. Um, and then at certain parts of the season, you don't want the rain because you have your crops drying out in the field, for example, and you want it to be dry. So we ask for rain, we ask for dew. It's interesting that the switch from dew to rain happens at the end of this holiday. It's gonna happen on Shmini Atzeret, which is coming up on Tuesday. On Tuesday, we'll begin to ask for rain in the Amida. Around the world, Jewish communities will start asking for Geshem, which is rain. There's a special prayer. It's a whole thing. A dance. I'm kidding. There's no rain dance. But it's a, we, say, we add in our prayers and we say a special prayer to initiate that, that idea. Well, the reason why we don't start asking for rain at the beginning of the holiday is because we're sitting in our sukkah. And that would be bad timing. Imagine, like, day one of the holiday, like... God make it rain. And imagine if our prayers are answered immediately. We're like, whose great idea was this? So, after the sukkah dwelling aspect is concluded, then we go, then we ask uh, for the rain on Shemini Atzeret, which is the last day of the holiday, but you're not obligated to eat in the sukkah then, etc. Okay, so back to, our, back to our topic, which is prayer. So we're speaking about prayer. The question is, where does prayer come from? Where's the notion where where's the where are the origins, Jewish origins of prayer? So I have on my phone, just because you know it's 2021, it's 5782, but it's still 2021. Oh, the English states are slacking, lagging behind for a few months. I'm kidding. So I have on my phone Maimonides, Rambam, who wrote a book called well, several volumes of a work called Mishnah Torah, where he compiled all of Jewish law, and not only the 630 mitzvot, he also did that, but he compiled the details of the of the laws of of Jewish Jewish law, and so I'm going to read to you the opening, several laws within the laws of prayer, as articulated by Maimonides. Maimonides did not come up with this. Maimonides took it from the sources, the Talmud, etc., and the Torah, obviously, the Torah the Talmud, and consolidated it and wrote it out in a beautiful way. Okay, so here we go. I'm gonna read it in English. I have opened the Safaria app, just so if you guys want to see what this is. It's an app called Safaria. It's also a website called Safaria. Great. They have amazing resources. Um, You can pretty much get the whole Torah at your fingertips bring it up and look up anything. Not everything is translated because it's just not, but a lot of stuff is. So here we go. To pray daily. Law number one. To pray daily is an affirmative duty. As it says, and you shall serve the Lord your God. You with me? So the verse says you shall serve the Lord your God. And Maimani says that's the source of prayer. It doesn't say to pray to God. It just says serve the Lord your God. Hold on. The service here referred to, according to the teaching of tradition, is prayer. In other words, the Torah just says, serve God. But our sages understand what does it mean to serve God? Like, what does that mean? Like, a, a bowl of soup? I <laughs> mean, serve God, what does it mean? Bow down, pray. How do we know this? Because there's another verse that says that you should serve Him with all your heart. Right again the word serve but this time it says with all your heart. On which the sages commented what may be described service of the heart. Again service could be physically bowing down it could be offering a gift. There's a book called Five Love Languages. Anybody familiar with that book? Five Love Languages it talks about different ways in which people express love. And so oh, sorry in which ways people want love to be expressed to them. So some people like gifts. Some people like words of affirmation. Some people like acts of service. Some people like um, quality time. And there might I guess there's a fifth. I think I did four. Oh well. <laughs> there's still work to do. Anyway, the point is like this. The point is that what does it mean, what what, what does it mean to serve God? So the other verse says serve God with all your heart. On which, the comment, w- on which the sages commented, what may be described as service of the heart? Prayer. So, in other words, what does it mean? To, how do you serve with your heart? That's what we call prayer. Prayer is not service of the lips. Prayer is not anything but service of the heart. Now, we're going we're gonna to talk about this at length. I want to keep on going, though, to give you more of the structure of prayer and the origins of that, which we're going to get to right now. The number of prayers, says Maimonides, is not prescribed in the Torah. No form of prayer is prescribed in the Torah, nor does the Torah prescribe a fixed time for prayer. So again, there's no, based on Torah law, It doesn't tell us how many prayers to say. It doesn't say what type of prayers to say. And it doesn't say when to pray. So Torah itself doesn't give us the details. Which means that it's a bit of an open-ended thing. We're supposed to pray. How, when, who, what, where, doesn't specify. That's why Maimonides continues in law number two. He has chapters, and each chapter is broken down into different paragraphs, which he calls halachas. Law 1, Law 2, Law 3. So the next law, Maimonides says, that's why everybody, men, women, it it goes across the board, everyone is obligated to pray. Because it's not a time-based mitzvah. As some of you may know, and I don't want to really get bogged down too much into this, um, according to Jewish law, women are exempt from time-constrained mitzvot. They can do it, but they're not obligated to do it. The understanding is that not always can, can uh, a woman be expected, you know, given, given practical considerations, to do a mitzvah, a specific mitzvah at a specific time. So therefore, there are some that, that women are exempt from. But prayer is not a time-based mitzvah. You could pray anytime. You could pray in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, at night, 2 a.m., 2 p.m., right? Anytime you can pray. So since there's no, since it's not bound by time, so the obligation is across the board. The obligation, I'm going to, I'm reading inside. The obligation in this precept is that every person should daily, according to their ability, offer up supplication and prayer. First, uttering praises of God. Then with humble supplication and petition, ask for all that they need. And finally, offer praise and thanksgiving to the Eternal for the benefits already bestowed upon them in rich measure. So prayer, he says, Maimonides says, really has three parts. Number one, praise of God. Number two, the ask. And number three, the gratitude for the blessings that one has already received. That's the formula, that's the structure. Let's continue. Number three, one who was fluent, says Maimonides, would offer up many prayers and supplications. If one was slow of speech, they would pray as they could and whenever they they pleased. In other words, some prayed often, some prayed not so often, some prayed at length, some not so much. One would pray once daily, others several times in the day. All, however, turned during prayer to the sanctuary, that's the temple, in whichever direction that might be. This was the uniform practice from the times of Moses all the way to the times of Ezra. Now, Ezra lived at the time of the, kind of, between the first and second temples. Okay, so this is going back about 2,500 years. So, for about, let's say, 800 years, I'm going to put it in the range of 800 to 1,000 years, from when the Exodus happened, we got the Torah at Sinai, prayer was kind of this individualized experience where we, everyone just prayed, spoke to God on their own, as they wished, as they felt inspired, for what they needed, etc. So it was more of a free-flowing experience. Well, then things changed, historically and practically for the Jewish people. When the people of Israel went into exile, in the days of the wicked Nebuchadnezzar, that means when the first temple was destroyed. And the Jews, who had been living sovereign in the land of Israel for hundreds of years, almost a thousand years, when they were first, for the first time, they were exiled. Now, everything changes. They mingled with the Persians. They mingled with the Greeks. They mingled with other nations. In those foreign countries, children were born to them, whose language was, was confused. What does that mean? People now, yet children, being born not in Israel, in the diaspora. And what language were they speaking? Persian, and Greek, etc. They were speaking foreign languages. Now, that's fine, but the problem is, so now not everyone knows how to articulate Hebrew prayer. This is why, this is the origin story for the liturgy, for why we have a script. You see, until this point, there was no script in prayer. Everyone prayed as they were inspired, and everyone was fluent in the holy tongue, and everyone knew kind of what to say and how to say it, more or less. But now you have a gener- generations of, of Jews being born in the diaspora, in other words, outside of Israel, that don't speak Lashon Kodesh, don't speak the Holy Tongue, and now it's complicated. No one was able, when he spoke, to express his thoughts adequately in any one language. Oh, listen to this. Otherwise, then incoherently, as it is said, their children spoke half in the speech of Ashtod, and they could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. Not only were they speaking oh, other languages, but they... They also learned a little Hebrew, but they were therefore not fluent in in, uh, this language and that language, right? Instead of being fluent in multiple languages, it's like, um, remember there was a school, I'm sure it was a joke, but there was a school up in the north, northeast, in which they were teaching the kids Yiddish, Hebrew, and English. I remember somebody who was a student, a former student there said, yeah, so I'm basically, Illiterate in three languages now. (laughs) Because sometimes you bite off more than you can chew, right? I mean, okay, it's a joke. I'm sure he he got it together. All right, let's continue. Consequently, when any one of them prayed in Hebrew, they were unable to adequately express their needs or recount the praises of God without mixing Hebrew with other languages. So they they couldn't express in Hebrew without throwing in the other languages. Now you just have very confused and complicated prayers. So when Ezra and his council, Ezra was the great leader at the time of the kind of return of the Renaissance after that first exile. So when Ezra and his council realized this condition, the predicament, they ordained the 18 benedictions, that's the Amidah, in their present order. In other words, they formalized and formulated and formalized the prayer liturgy that we have. When you open up the prayer book and you wonder, who wrote it? This is the origin story. Ezra, yeah, this is the story right here. Because before that, there was no need. Everyone knew what to say, more or less. And then they didn't. So someone had to write it down. The 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 object aimed at, the object aimed at, in other words, the goal was that these prayers should be in an orderly form in everyone's mouth, that all should learn them, and thus the prayer of those who were not expert in speech would be as perfect as those who had command of the language for the same reason they arranged all the blessings and prayers for all jews so that the substance of every blessing should be familiar and current in the mouth of one who is not expert in speech so basically the prayer book was composed the liturgy was composed to benefit the community given that not everyone was able to compose their own beautiful fluent hebrew prayers make sense Okay, this is the origin story. Now, at the same time, they also formalized the number of prayers and the times of prayer. Remember what he said before? You could pray any time, as, as much as you want. Well, that became also defined. Thus, too, they ordained that the services of prayer should be equal in number to the sacrifices, two services of prayer daily, corresponding to the two daily offerings. Now, there's a third we'll get to in a second. But originally, there's two daily prayers, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, corresponding to the two daily offerings in the temple on behalf of the community. One was in the morning, one was in the afternoon. And on the, and for the day on which an additional offering was ordained in the temple, they instituted a third prayer corresponding to the additional offering. We call that Musaf. So for example, on Shabbat, we have an additional Amidah prayer. We call that the Musaf, which we do after the Torah reading. Um, And that's because on Shabbat in the temple, they brought an additional offering. Every day they brought two offerings, morning and afternoon. So we do morning and afternoon prayers. On Shabbat and holidays, there was an additional offering brought. So we do an additional uh, prayer. Let's continue. The service which corresponds to the daily morning sacrifice is called Shachraz, the morning prayer. The service which corresponds to the afternoon sacrifice is called Mincha, the afternoon prayer. And the additional service is called the Musaf, the additional prayer. Now let's continue. So they also ordained that a person should also recite one service of prayer at night. This is the third service or the fourth if it's Shabbat or holidays, since the portions of the animal offered up as the afternoon sacrifice were consumed on the altar throughout the night. Basically, they offered two daily offerings. This is in addition to private offerings. Anyone could bring a private offering to the temple. But on behalf of the community, there was one lamb in the morning and one lamb in the afternoon. We've spoken about that before in, our, in various classes. One lamb in the morning, one lamb in the afternoon. But whatever wasn't burnt up on the altar during the day could burn the entire night. So we have a, th- we have a night prayer which we call myriv, the, the, the night prayer, which corresponds to what the altar was doing, consuming the sacrifices at night. So again, every day we have now, two plus one is three, plus the additional one could be four. So every day we have three daily prayers. Shacharis in the morning, Minch in the afternoon, myriv at night. On Shabbat, we add a fourth in the middle. Between the morning and the afternoon prayer, we add... Musaf. That's, that's, the, that's the deal. All of this comes about because there came a point in our history where we were no longer fluent and, and articulate enough to do it on our own. So the sages said, we're going to write out the script. We're going to write out the formula. I mean, we wouldn't have an opposition for that when it comes to... Um, When it comes to a play, no one would have a problem with that. I mean, yeah, ideally, the actors should get up on stage and be able to pull off a play based on what's on their hearts. But practically speaking, that's not going to happen, right? Because it's going to be hard. We call that improv, and it's usually comedy. And it usually, anybody like improv comedy? Mm -hmm. Usually devolves into, like, physical comedy or whatever because, you know, that's kind of the way it works. Yeah.
1: So that means even nowadays, like, we don't really fully understand when we read the prayers
0: in Hebrew that we're still doing the mitzvah. Ah, so, so let me get to modern applications in a second. So, again, everyone should ideally, you know, spontaneously be able to, to praise God and thank God and ask for what we need, etc. The reality is not so simple. So we have a script. The script is the liturgy. Now, The script was written in Hebrew. So now what do we do today in 2021? Maybe we we read the Hebrew side and it's like, I don't know, now this doesn't make sense to me, the modern American Jew. So what do we do today? So we can pray from the other side, the English side. Um, One can pray in Hebrew, whether they understand it or not, or one can pray in the language they understand, or do a combination. You can do some readings in Hebrew, look on the other side, look at the translation. I recommend... I recommend, again, this is all predicated on the, on the ability, obviously, to read the Hebrew side, but if you can read the Hebrew side, my recommendation would be take, you know, if you're, if you're praying every day, start with one paragraph and, and learn what that means in, in English so that when you say it in Hebrew, you know the meaning, and then the rest you can do in English, and then keep adding, like every week, add another, add another paragraph, right? Or like, let's say, take the Amidah. It has 18, well, they added another blessing. It has 19 blessings. It's not not long. I mean, it's a few pages, but it's like, it's defined. 19 blessings, one blessing a day. Read the blessing and learn, learn what it means. And then you can meditate on it. This blessing is for wisdom. This blessing is for forgiveness. This blessing is for health. This blessing is for prosperity. This blessing is for the safety and security of our people. Whatever, every blessing has a theme. So just that's one way to do it, where you are bridging the Hebrew and the English, but there's no problem blessing, uh, praying in the English, which roughly not roughly, I mean, what which corresponds to the Hebrew liturgy. Okay, so that's that's the body, what I would call the body of prayer. But if you recall, and I don't think I'm going to read more. It, I mean, there's obviously more, and but this is kind of what I wanted to mention. The microwave is ready. No, I'm kidding. It's like some message uh, thing that popped up. No, 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 it's mine. It's mine. Okay, now like this. We started off this journey by explaining with Maimonides telling us that the biblical source of the obligation to the mitzvah to pray is the verse that says, you shall serve the Lord your God. How do you serve God? Oh, there's another verse. Maimonides says, oh, it says, serve with your heart. What does that mean? (laughs) What do I do? That means prayer. And I said, I'm going to circle back to it, and now I'm circling back to it. Because what Maimonides did is gave us the body structure of prayer. But now let's go deeper and let's get to the soul, which he alludes to also, but let's get to the soul. Why is Avodah Shebelev, why is heart service, service of the heart, why is that prayer? Why is that prayer? So now we need to understand what prayer really is and what prayer is all about. The biggest, and I wrote this in the email last night, and I, 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 I wrote it more tentatively than I actually feel about it, but I just felt like, you know, let me write it more tentatively. I said, perhaps. I was debating whether to write perhaps or not. I believe that prayer is the most misunderstood aspect of Judaism. And I believe that it is also the most difficult Aspect of Judaism. Look, eating matzah, sure. Scheifer, sure. Sitting in the sukkah, absolutely, no problem. Shabbos, okay, it's difficult. Kosher, yeah, challenging. But still, okay, doable. But prayer, listen, present company, I'm sure, uh, um, um, excluded. Present company, yeah, excluded. But prayer makes people feel uncomfortable. People don't feel comfortable walking to synagogues, oftentimes, and praying. They don't get it. They don't understand it. It doesn't resonate, etc. That's the reality. And the truth is, there's a reason for this. And I'll tell you the reason. But first, I need to ask a question that's asked in Kabbalah. And the question is, why are we asking God for what we need? Right? Maimani says there's three parts of prayer. The first part is praising God. Okay, God, you're awesome. Good. Then we ask for our needs. And then part three is we're, we, we express gratitude for the blessings that we have. Simple question. Simple question is, why are we asking God for what we need? It sounds like on a simple, now you might say, well, yeah, because we need stuff. So we're asking God. So what's the premise of that? Let's make it into a conversation. What's the premise of asking God for what you need? What's, what's that predicated on? What do you believe? What's the, what's the faith foundation? That God, right. Number one, God can deliver. So, well, I guess let's take a step back. Number one, you believe in God. Number two, you believe that God can deliver. Number three, what's, what's another belief that, that's required for, for, prayer, for petition prayer? Gratitude. Okay, gratitude also. But, I mean, like, if you're praying to God for what you need, what's, what's that based on? You believe in God. You believe that God can deliver. You believe that God's listening to you. God cares what you're saying. Right? It's based on these assumptions. I'm going to give you another assumption that I have. I believe that God is good, and I believe that God knows what we need even more than we know what we need. And I believe that God is good and loving and would want to give us more than we want to get. It's like a parent, right? It's like a parent wants to give the child what the child needs more than the child wants to ask for what they need. Listen. Human beings are complicated, but I'm saying the ideal, parent, right? The ideal, like, in, in, right? The ideal is you know your kid, you know what they need, and you, you want to give them what they need. So then what's the whole point of prayer? We're, are we reminding God of our needs because he doesn't know? He's like, oh, I had no idea you needed that. Sure, I'll add it to my list. I'll add it to my to-do today. I'm going to try to get that to you today. If not today, then maybe tomorrow. So what, God doesn't know? Number one. Number two, you're convincing God. You're twisting God's arm. You're trying to butter God up and say, oh God, you know, nice tie. Can I get this? Like, what? God doesn't want to give you? Of course he wants to give you. So what's going on here? What? 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 And this is a thought that I've shared before in different, different contexts, but it's really important. The mystics explain that prayer is less about informing God of what we need. And it's more about us recognizing where our blessings truly come from. Because we go through this life believing that we are in control. We go through this life with the assumption, not assumption, yes, also assumption, but with this belief, whether we articulate it to ourselves or not. We believe that we are in control, that our success our failures, our destiny are in our control, and that we create it or we destroy it, etc. And prayer is a time for us to embrace the idea that God is in control. Which means that by its very definition, because, so let, let me slow it down before I get to the therefore. Hold on, let me slow this down. That's what it means to to ask God for our needs in prayer. Not that we're telling God what we need. Not that we're pleading to God, please give me this. We're not begging. What kind of parent wants their child to beg for something? It's not a nice parent, right? That's not the God we believe in. Famously, Rabbi Levi Zobar a Hasidic master, once met someone who said, he doesn't believe in God. He's an atheist. To tell me why Explain his issues with God. And the rabbi said to him, You know what? I agree with you. The same God you don't believe in, I also don't believe in. Yeah, so a sadistic God, a cruel God, an evil God, dogmatic God, sure, reject, reject that. It's not the Jewish God. The Jewish God is a loving parent. And a loving parent doesn't want the child, doesn't want the child to beg on their hands and knees for something. It's not nice. What kind of parent is that? It's not a, it's not a loving parent. So then why are we asking in prayer? Let God give it to us. Prayer is the opportunity for us to articulate our understanding, our acknowledgement that the blessings are coming from God. It gives us the opportunity to reorient ourselves inside and out, to recognize and to embrace the fact that it's God who's in control of my life, and of this entire operation called reality, and not me. And that's why it's so powerful. So when we're asking God, we're not saying, please, God, give this to me. We're saying, God, this is what I want. As I said last week, this is what I need to fulfill my mission, your mission in this world, the mission that you've given me in this world. But the point of prayer is directing it to God, recognizing that that's where the blessings are truly coming from. So, it moves me from a a self-made man perspective to a God-created man perspective. And that makes all the difference in the world, which which is why, by definition, prayer is a vulnerable experience. Because at its core, it's letting go of the notion that I'm in control. And how comfortable are we doing that? How comfortable are we saying, I'm not in control, God's in control? That's a comfortable thing. It's not a comfortable thing. It's scary. It's scary to let go. It's scary to, to say that we don't have the power. We don't, we're not in control. Right? The world has taught us over the last 18 months, we're not in control. As much as we want to be in control and seize control, we're not in control. So we can fight it. We can do this, that, or the other. Or we can embrace it. And spiritually, it's embedded in the, the Jewish way of life. Three times a day, we have the opportunity to turn Not just to God, but to turn inward, to turn inward and declare for our own ears to hear, I'm not in control, I'm not in control, I'm not in control. God's in control. It's less for God to hear and more for us to hear. Which is why, in my opinion, it's the most misunderstood part of Judaism and the hardest. Because who's showing up to become vulnerable? That's a hard thing, right? We show up for uh, for a dance. We show up for a party. We show up for um, show up to be vulnerable to expose yourself, your, to bear your soul and your heart. Who's lining up? It's a vulnerable experience. Plus, the reality is that not every synagogue is conducive to a vulnerable experience. Why? I don't know because I think at some point, I do know, at some point I think we lost focus of what prayer really is. But what is prayer? Avodah shabalev. Our sages say when the Torah says, serve God with your heart, what does it mean, prayer? And you might have thought, well, what's prayer with heart? Prayer and heart? I don't know. Prayer is reading a bunch of words on a page. I can't understand anyway. Prayer is listening to a rabbi's sermon. Prayer is the Torah reading. What's heart? Where's the heart? Because it's about listening to the words that we're saying. Because every page of that prayer book is focusing on source, not self. And it's letting go of self, letting go of being in control. It's becoming vulnerable, which is absolutely an internal, internal work. So our sages say, when it says, serve God with your, kish- with your insides, what is it? It's not shaking the lulav. It's not eating matzah. It's not listening to the shofar. These are beautiful mitzvahs. I'm not knocking them not lighting the menorah, it's not lighting Shabbat candles, not eating kosher, that's not serving God with your heart. That's not being vulnerable. What's serving God with your heart? That's prayer. Which is why it's the hardest experience, the most misunderstood, because when did anyone learn this? Prayer is vulnerability. No one ever learned this. No one ever learns this.
1: I think people kind of don't really understand like what exactly that means. Like I think like when you're surrendering to God, I think people don't understand that if you're, it's not like a type of surrendering like from a cult or something. Right. Like you're not. Usually, when you are surrender, it means that you're being dominated by something. Right. And I think that prayer is not that. It isn't. An, it's an empowerment process. It's not a disempowerment process. Right. It's kind of like like Ohm's law, kind of like if we surrender, we're like lowering our resistance to God being able to flow through us for these blessings.
0: Right. Can I can. I want to repeat what you're saying so that everyone online can hear. Okay. What Adam is saying is that surrendering to God is not a disempowering experience. It's not like it's not what we typically think like in the sense of like a cult, like, like relinquishing power and that's sort of like, like a negative. It's rather being open to allowing God's, God's reality to flow through as opposed to impeding it, as opposed to, it, right. as opposed to res- resisting it or rejecting it. Exactly. And it begins by recognizing first and foremost God. Right. And, 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 and becoming a little bit more transparent internally. Donna, you had
1: so the, like the three times a day it also gives us an opportunity to have a direct connection with god right? yes right? yeah yeah and then and we become partners yes but i also want to say what, you know when you said that sometimes the general synagogue is not conducive i also find that if you hadn't grown up and knowing all the details like when to bow when to
0: walk right right steps, right
1: that's and there's no one ever there's no class in it
0: it makes it hard yeah, yeah. okay so i'm going to repeat a few things so donna said um the, the three daily prayers are helpful as opportunities to connect, to plug in, which I want to speak about in a moment as we get inside our text. It's going to be a good segue. Um, and then also, it's like sometimes we feel uncomfortable going to synagogue because you walk into a space and everyone's like, you know, there's like synchronized swimming going on. And you're like, I don't even know the moves. Like, you know, like everyone's doing the Macarena. And I'm like... <laughs> Is that like the chicken there? Like uh, what's like we're bowing, we're moving, we're this, we're that, the othering, right? So there should be a class there about how be. to do. it. Look, there should be, yeah. and I'm gonna add it to the to the roster, okay. please God. But I will say, and this is something that I've seen work. If you come to services for a certain amount of time, you eventually pick it up. <laughs> you eventually learn the uh, the moves, how the did dance. You call as I, I call out the pages. I'm, I'm a big page caller outer, as you know. Yakko, um, jump in.
1: Um, so, when you were saying that prayer, asking God for what we want, obviously is not for God because God would automatically do that anyway. Right. Uh, it reminds me of um, not something that's scary, but uh, reminds me just to of, the, of our own powers of co creation that were given um, to God, not just, you know co-create the world, but co-create our own reality, you know, think about it and it happens. <clears throat> so that's what I thought, um, that it's important to remind ourselves or, or clarify for what we want, because, you know, if we're, if we're fearing something and worrying about something, that something happens. But if we have a positive uh, vision of, of the outcome, right. um, it creates a positive result. So that's what I
0: thought. Beautiful. I like that. I like that. Yeah, the idea that our perception, the space that we're in, actually helps form that reality. So look, it's, again, the purpose of prayer, and this is really my, my key point As we right before we jump into the new text that we're starting. We're starting Chapter 2 of Discourse 11 in a moment. Um, if you have the booklets, by the way, just so you can get ready for it, it's page 172 in your booklets. Here's, here's the big idea for today. The big idea is when we stand in prayer or we sit in prayer or whatever it is, we're not informing God of something God doesn't know. We're informing ourselves of a message that we have to remind ourselves again and again and again, which is there's a power greater than us. That's it. If we had to, if we had to, you know, di- not dissolve it. If we had to um, distill it, if we had to like bring it down into one simple one simple point. It's we're, we're not telling God, here's what I need, here's who I am. You know, God knows that. We're telling ourselves that there's a higher power. All right, so with that in mind, we're going to continue our conversation from last week about praying loudly. We said typically the Amidah, those 18, 19 blessings that Maimonides spoke about, those blessings are meant to be recited quietly only we should hear, but not shouting. But certain times of year, high holidays, we're not shouting, but we're we're supposed to say them with a louder voice. And in times of distress, in times of need, we're meant to articulate our prayers with a loud voice. And we said, don't worry about the fact that it's going to seem like you don't think God can hear you, like you're shouting at God. No, it just means that you're passionate. And when you're passionate, this is how we ended off last week. And this is what we pick up with chapter two. When we're passionate, when it comes from the depths of us, it hits the essence of the source. So now he asks, chapter two, how does that work? What are the mechanics? Just because it comes from inside you, it reaches the inside of God. How, how How exactly does that work? Chapter 2, 172, let's begin. I'm going to pull this up online as well, so everybody can follow along simultaneously. 172, middle of the page, chapter 2. What is the reason that a cry with great voice, right? that's the quote from the verse, with great voice awakens the inwardness and essence of the blessed infinite light? Why is it that a cry from the the, um, essence of the soul evokes the essence of the divine. So the meaning of this, he he adds, is not understood. Is it not true that to God all are equal? So what difference is there if one prays in a whisper or aloud? What merit is there in the great voice? Isn't the important thing the prayer? In other words, the prayer seems to be the, the, the primary idea. How the volume of the prayer, secondary. So why is it that we said that a great voice stirs, The depths of the heavens and brings down the deepest blessings. Why does volume matter? Here's the answer. The prayer is indeed what matters. In other words, yes, it's all about the prayer. And prayer is a union and a bond. In other words, prayer, the definition of prayer is connection. And this is really, I meant to mention this before, but let me just do this quickly now. Prayer, tefillah, the word for prayer in Hebrew is tefillah. Tough peh, yud, lam, hey Tefillah. again, is translated as prayer, but prayer in English, at least, has a connotation of petition. Again, please, God, this is what I need. It's not what tefillah is. Tefillah in Hebrew means connection, not petition. Petition means there's two strangers, right, almost, and I'm asking, I'm informing, and asking and begging of the one to give to me. Petition. That's not, what, that's not what tefillah is. Tefillah is connection. It's an opportunity for me to connect closely with the other, in this case, with God. And that gets back to the internal stuff, because when I acknowledge that God is the source, that God's in control, which, by the way, is the theme of the sukkah. The theme of the sukkah is, you know, we leave our homes. That's what we created. We built our homes. We built those fortresses around us. We go out into God's space, and we say, God, you're in control. You take care of us. Give us decent weather, please. Right? That's what we say to God. So it's all about letting go and welcoming God in, and that creates a connection. So let's, let's continue. So prayer is back inside, again, that first, sorry, that, um, that second paragraph of chapter 2. The prayer is indeed what matters, and prayer is a union and a bond. Through prayer, the soul is bound with God. This is the soul of prayer. It's bound with God. This compels one's prayer to be with a strong voice indicating the awakening of a soul in its true attachment to God. In other words, what his argument is like this. If your soul is coming out of its shell, right, and, and, and connecting with God, what's that going to sound like? A whisper? Are you kidding me? It's not going to sound like a whisper. Your soul is coming out of its hibernation and reconnecting with God. Again, the soul is always there. But we don't always live on that level of pure soul. We live in a world of distraction and we live in a world of gadgets and other, you know, again, other materialistic things. When the soul comes out, when the soul is expressed in its full majesty, it doesn't express itself in a whimper. It expresses itself with a strong voice. That is, again, indicating the awakening of his soul and his true attachment to God. True means, what does it mean, true attachment to God? True means maintaining one straight line from beginning to end. So he's defining truth. Truth means, he says, consistency. Truth means that it doesn't change. It's not like, well, you know, I felt it and now I don't feel it. No, true is beginning to end. Now, every revelation, we're back inside. Now, every revelation reveals Only a certain part of what is concealed within. And when he says every revelation, typically when something becomes revealed, only a part of it becomes revealed. But truth means, a true revelation means, that the concealed inwardness manifests itself in its entirety. Hold on. Hold on, hold on, everybody. Recording in progress. All right. My apologies. It looks like our um, internet jumped out for a second. Let me reshare. Hold on. Let me check with our online crew. Can you guys hear me and see me? Yes. Okay. Good. Sorry about that. We glitched out for a second. Okay. So he's saying that prayer is the experience of rediscovering your soul, rediscovering God's reality, rediscovering truth. Your soul is a piece of God. God's real, more real than the stuffed table in front of us. That's what prayer is. And when the soul comes out, it's going to make a loud noise. It's going to make some noise. Because typically, he says, revelation only reveals a certain part. But true revelation, truth means that the concealed inwardness manifests itself in its entirety just as it stands in its essential state. So true revelation means that the way it is in its core essence is the way it comes out. It means the full power of the soul is coming out and being expressed in the experience of prayer. And here we go. Let's continue. Final, final um, verse, not verse, sorry, final sentence of this Second to last chapter on the page. Since this revelation comes with deep feeling in the depths and inwardness of the heart, it comes necessarily with a strong voice. In other words, since the soul, the, the, the essence of the soul, which is in such a deep state within us, is coming out and being revealed in the process of prayer, in the service of prayer, it comes out in a strong voice. Make sense so far? Okay, let's continue. Zohar says, bottom paragraph, Zohar Zohar's Kabbalah. Zohar says that spirit evokes spirit and bestows spirit. Okay, again, spirit evokes spirit and bestows spirit. Let me explain. Let me just break down that phrase. Spirit means the soul. So when the soul expresses itself, it evokes spirit from on high which then bestows spirit back down to us. So we reach from our, from our essence to God's essence, and that triggers a flow from God's essence back to us. So spirit evokes spirit and bestows spirit. It's this beautiful cycle. Since the person, let's back inside, bottom line of 172. Since the person is touched so profoundly, he evokes and elicits, 174, the inwardness and essence of the blessed infinite light. The souls of Israel are rooted specifically in this inwardness and are therefore able to reveal the depths of the inward spark of their hearts that it manifests itself as it is in the deepest recesses. In other words, because of the divine soul, we have the ability to bring out an incredibly powerful essence state into Revelation. Thus, they are enabled to awaken the inwardness and essence of the blessed infinite light, i.e. to receive the beneficence from the internal aspect of the makif. This is a reference to what we explained a few weeks ago, how you have, like, the level of makif is typically a free-for-all and everyone can get. But the inner part of makif is only accessible to those that are indeed worthy. But the souls of Israel simply cannot receive from the external aspect, for they have nothing to do with the external. In other words, to get from the free-for-all place is not the right place. It, it, it needs to come from this expression of the depths of the soul. He says in 174-second paragraph, only idolaters can receive from the external, because their entire nurture is from the hinder part and external, while Israel are rooted in the inwardness from which they receive nurture, but not from the external. Hence, when Israel sinned, they are punished with exile and are humiliated until they return to God and cry out from the inner depths of the heart. Then they awaken the great mercies from the source of mercies, the internal of the Makif. Essentially, I explained this, I think two weeks ago, the idea that when it comes to the exile, our, hist- our history of exile, we could look at it as in a negative way and, and punishment and suffering and tribulation, which is all true. But we can also look at it on a, with a positive angle, which is that God cares enough about us that our actions have consequences. When you don't care, there's no consequences, right? So someone else's kid, do whatever you want, not my kid. But my kid, I want to redirect. Why? Because you have a responsibility if you're a kid. When you have a responsibility, so it's a different level. There's a, it works both ways. So what we're saying is that our connection with God is so close that our actions matter, and whether positive or negative. But let's speak about the positive. The positive here is that what does it look like to connect with God, a a big piece of that is prayer. When we open up our soul and we become vulnerable and and we express ourselves to ourselves and to God and welcome that reality inside of us. And the truth is, along the lines of what Adam said, it's less about discovering an external, out-there God, and more about discovering the truth of who we are, right? I have a godly soul inside. And thus, prayer is really me speaking to myself about the reality of God, but also about the reality of God inside of me. That's not the lower self, but the higher self, the deepest self, the truest self. And when that comes out, that comes out with force. Let's wrap, let's, um, let's conclude this section which kind of really ties together a lot of what we've been discussing in the last few months. Thus, this is third paragraph 174. Thus, one who, this is a quote from Deuteronomy, one who blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace for by what my heart sees fit I will go. In other words, the person that says, I'm going to do whatever I want, live whatever life I want, and I'm going to be fine. That person imagines that he will receive whether they realize it or not, they're imagining that they're going to receive from the externality of the makif, as do the klipot and sitra akra, the, the negative forces in reality, who elevate themselves to receive from there, as do, and as do the idolaters of this, in this mundane world. And these do receive bount, bounteously without reckoning. In other words, a person says, look, they can do it, why can't I do it? They're successful, I can be successful. They're cutting corners, I can cut corners. They don't follow the rules, I can I not follow the rules also. I'll be okay. So he says, well, you're comparing yourself to a, a, a negative space, to a negative force. Why would you do that? He pictures himself back inside, that middle. The middle of that paragraph, the third paragraph, he pictures himself like them. But this is a lie and merely self-delusion. He fools himself, imagining that he will also receive from the external. But Israel cannot receive from external of the Makif, only from the internality of Seder Eshashalot and its source from the inwardness of the Makif is explained. From there, nurture is with judgment and reckoning. So what he does receive is doomed to be terminated. In other words, if a person says, I'm going to bank on cutting all the rules, shunning all, all, all protocol, and I'll still be okay. What he's saying is you can try that, but ultimately it's not going to be successful because ultimately God wants an eternal connection, and it's not going to be enough for us to get through this kind of like backdoor, no one's paying attention realm. That's going to dry out. And that's what he says right here. Why good things happen to bad people. Let's continue. We're going to make a quick, not quick, but make a straight run to the end of this chapter. There are many wicked who succeed at the outset, but their wealth and success are temporary, for, for, for all is with reckoning. Again, that's the big line here, all is with reckoning. There's always a cheshbon, there's always an accountant. The initial success of the wicked has two reasons. So he's, asking the, he's addressing the question, so why initially does, do, the, do those who, who are breaking the rules, why are they successful? He says two reasons. First, as reward for some good deed. Of those that man enjoys their 176 fruits in this world, and the principle is preserved for the world to come. In other words, there there is a reality that people, even those that are, he's calling wicked, I'm not gonna, even those that that, that would be like evildoers in this world, they still have good deeds. So it could be that the success is kind of based on and, and collecting, you know, making bank off of the good deeds, the mitzvot that they've done, and uh and when that dries out that dries out second he says we've explained before discourse seven chapter four that so long as the good within him has not been destroyed the clip are nurtured with additional vitality from the holy and he the person takes his share first hence he is granted material goods lavishly in other words think of the clipode as a parasite what is a parasite a parasite finds something that's healthy leeches off of that to draw energy right and to gain life but meanwhile, it doesn't, doesn't contribute on its own, but it just leeches until it sucks everything dry and then moves on to the next victim. That's what a parasite does. So he's saying that clipote, the evil forces, are kind of like parasites. So they find someone who's willing to walk down that, you know, devious path with, path with them. They suck out the energy, but once that's done, they move on. So that's what he says here. Oh, sorry, while, with a difference. While the parasite is parasiting, the person also is living a good life, but that will come to an end, as he says. But later, this is one, two, three, four, five, six lines six lines in, but later the nurture is stopped. He becomes impoverished, afflicted physically, and isolated from mankind. Many men of wealth have undesirable character traits, even repugnant ones. They're egocentric and arrogant. As long as he has his wealth, and here's a quote, I believe, from Proverbs. Let's see, is it from Proverbs 2.24? Yeah. Um, As long as he has his wealth, many are friends of the wealthy. Certainly, they are not deluded into forgetting that their wealth is honored, not they themselves. In other words, the person realizes that people love them, like them for their money. Yet, they they are so deceived about their own character that they draw strength from their treachery. In other words, they know it's not authentic 100%, but they still like it. But when their wealth is gone and they are poor, they recognize their true nature full of mankind's defects and failings inevitably the prosperity of the wicked must end for israel's nurtures from the inward with judgment is uh, from the inward with judgment with reckoning the exception is he repays the wicked to his face to destroy him i.e one who lacks all merit god forbid but if he does have merit so the idea is if he lacks all merit it seems like it goes like flips the other way and they they still somehow have a connection i don't he doesn't explain that line but maybe for another time we can we can analyze that. But if he does have some merit of some sort does have merit of some sort and is included in the community of Israel, he cannot receive without a reckoning. Everything is according to accounting because of the nature of inwardness, the person's source and root. So what's the what's the bottom line? We started with prayer, and we, got, and we ended up with, why do good things happen to bad people? And it seems maybe it's a little confusing, but the truth is, it all goes around, revolves around the same idea. It all revolves around how I started today's session, which is about prayer, which is about service of the heart, which is about not only authenticity, but it's about recognizing the true reality. That's what it comes down to. And the truth is, this is really what Judaism comes down to. It's really what life comes down to. It's recognizing the ultimate truth. What is the truth? Am I true or is God true? Is my body true or is my soul true? That's the question, right? Am I in control, is God in control? Is my body in control or is my soul in control? What's the primary element? Is it my animal soul, my godly soul? What's the dominant force in my life? The truth is, there's an objective answer and a subjective answer. The objective answer is whatever you feel. Do you feel like God's in control? Great, if not, then you're in control. That's the subjective answer. Do you feel like your body is leading the way or your soul is leading the way? Your animal soul or your godly soul? That's a subjective answer that we all choose at every moment. But there's an objective answer. The objective answer is God is in control. The godly soul is dominant over the animal soul. And generally, the soul is more powerful than the body. That's the the objective truth. But because subjective-ism, if that's the right way to say it. But I'll just rephrase it. But because... The idea of being subjective is so powerful. Because our subjective perception is so powerful, therefore, it's very important, it's very important for us to not only know the truth or believe in the truth, but to express that truth. And that's what prayer is. No, it's not when we shake a lulav, it's not when we, when we eat matzah, it's not when we listen to the shofar. It's when we pray and we express the fact over and over that our wisdom and our forgiveness and our health and our prosperity are in God's hands, it's when we articulate that to ourselves. God knows it. God knows it. He's heard it before. when, When we wake up to that reality, we can recognize the truth of who we are and the truth of what we are and the truth of what God is and who God is and how this whole thing works. And at that point, at that point, the inside comes out, and then we're connected. Now with some abstract reality, but with the truth of who we are inside. We connect with our godly soul, and the godly soul has dominance over the animal soul, the soul over the body, and divine over the material. And that's the way it is. When we embrace this truth from the inside, it's a game changer. It's an absolute game changer. And that's how we connect with God. The alternative Alternative is to live our lives unaware of what's inside, unaware of God's reality, and, uh, and hoping for the best. And his point is, at some point, that, that option runs dry. At some point, we can't keep on being successful, even, even physically, without an awareness of truth. That's what he's saying. That's really what he's saying. Saying, at the end of the day, the material, can only, the material success can only go so far. You want to call it a midlife crisis? Sure, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. But what is a midlife crisis if not the realization, the wake-up call, that uh, when a person asks themselves, what, actually, what am I doing with my life? Like, what's, what, what direction am I headed? What's, what, why am I here? In, in truth, the midlife crisis is a spiritual wake-up call, whether we choose to recognize it as such or not. But the call is the call and it's coming from inside. It's coming from outside. It's coming, but it's primarily from within. And the answer is to nurture our spiritual side. So no, it doesn't mean to give up physical reality. It doesn't mean to, you know, give up food and drink and everything and, and, and move to the top of a mountain and meditate all day. No, living a life, going to work, you know, living, living a, a normal life, so to speak, but having those moments, each and every day in which we remind ourselves of the truth and we reconnect with truth in those moments. And prayer is a major piece of that. Torah study also, absolutely. But prayer and Torah study and prayer are intertwined. You can't pray without studying first because what are you praying with without an idea in your mind and your heart? Study, meditation, and prayer, and charity, tzedakah before davening, these are the keys to successful connection experience. But connection it must be. It's not for God, it's for us. make it selfish. don't make it so much about God. don't be so spiritual on me. make it about ourselves. We need this. We need to know this reality about our soul, about God, about vulnerability. All right yeah
1: I think this brings up something like really important that you said that like true idolatry is kind of like thinking that God is something out there right that it's not it's not something that is internal. that's really what the power is in something else. It's not inside. Yeah. It's At- out there. It's
0: not here. Let me repeat what Adam is saying. Adam is saying something brilliant. Adam is saying that true idolatry, as, because the, the rest of the chapter talks, it's the same theme, but it talks about like idolatry versus not idolatry. True idolatry is believing that God is some other force that we may or, not, may, or may not believe in or acknowledge or whatever. But it's embracing God as, as in me. As the truth of my existence, which is what I I was trying to articulate here at the end, prayer is about discovering not an outside reality, but this is my true essence. This is my reality. That's what makes it, that's the antithesis to idolatry. Idolatry is othering God. Monotheism, whatever it is, serving God means, in this context, embracing God as one with me. It says that Abraham introduced monotheism to the world. What did he introduce, according to Kabbalah? The idea that God and the world are not two separate realities, right? But rather one and the same. That God, the world doesn't exist if not for God. That God is flowing through, divine energy is flowing through every being. Even in a stone, there's a soul. In a human being, there's a soul. And the soul, the divine soul constitutes the core essence of who and what we are. To acknowledge that is to live. To deny that is to exist, but it's not to live. Living means you acknowledge and recognize the truth. Existing is just getting by. Existing is just surviving. It's just physically existing. But living means with some soul. So this week, as we enjoy our time in the sukkah, I'm gonna show you guys the Shrach. I love the Shrach is the roof, the natural bamboo woven roof. When we sit outside in the sukkah and smell this fresh smell of the popcorn machine, you guys smell that? I just got a waft of popcorn. Yeah, it just literally like hit over here. There's a kid's carnival starting at 11, like three minutes ago, I guess. We're about to get hit with music, I'm sure, so we'll we'll close it out. But as we sit outside in the sukkah for for the next few days, really today and tomorrow, the obligatory days remaining of this holiday, let's um let's embrace let's really embrace the message of prayer and of the sukkah which is about recognizing the truth that god is god is here god is not out there god is here with me that i don't i can't i don't exist without god and when god is part of our reality everything changes for the good thank you for joining me for come along coffee And what we're going to do now is, for those here, we'll do the mitzvah of shaking the lulav and the esrog at home. For those that that have a lulav and esrog, don't forget to do it. If you you want to do it, you can swing by at any point in time and make it happen. All right, let's uh, say farewell. Luann, Yaakov, Tony, Toba, Joy, Alex, Joy, David, Fran, and Eileen. Great to see you guys. Lots of love. Chag Sameach, and we'll see you soon. Take care. Okay.